Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. The COVID-19 pandemic sent shockwaves across the world, leaving political leaders at every level grappling with how to curb the spread of the virus, including introducing lockdowns, travel bans and mass vaccination programmes. Two years on, for many people, life is starting to get back to how it was before. However, as we'll hear in this episode, the political consequences of the pandemic are still being felt. My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, we will hear how in the UK, the pandemic caused the downfall of a prime minister and is still affecting key government priorities today. We will discuss how the far right exploited the chaos and confusion surrounding COVID-19 to recruit new followers. We will also look at how the pandemic affected the standing of global leadership organisations, as well as challenging previously held ideas about effective leaders and political systems. We will hear from three academics in the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy here at King's College London. Professor Andrew Blick, Head of our Department of Political Economy. Professor Finmi Olonishakin, Professor of Security Leadership and Development at the African Leadership Centre and Vice President responsible for international engagement and service at King's. And Blythe Crawford, a Research Fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation and a PhD student in the Department of War Studies. So let's start by going back to early 2020, when the new COVID-19 virus was declared a global pandemic. It was a time of fear, uncertainty and social isolation, which for some created opportunities, as Blythe Crawford explains. So I think the fact that we were kind of all restricted to our homes at this point um, during the pandemic and cut off from um, more sensible voices and more measured and restrained um, dialogue about the pandemic. I do think that that did have kind of a large impact on the fact that people were really seeking easy answers and that these were available and were quite prevalent at some points in the pandemic online. And there were these burgeoning online communities overlapping with sort of wellness influencers online, particularly on Facebook and Instagram, um, that had somewhat easy answers and were kind of already involved in the anti-vax narrative. And yeah, were to a lot of people a source of comfort that they weren't really able to find otherwise at that point in the pandemic. For political groups on the far right, this offered a new way of reaching people. I think that coronavirus provided this, for them, incredible opportunity where kind of there was widespread moral panic and widespread indecision. Um, and the far right was very well equipped to kind of deal with that. A lot of what the far right has done and incorporated into their propaganda has played upon the fact that there is a lot of uncertainty in, in society, particularly at those opening stages of the pandemic, and also a lot of confusion and potentially ill will towards the government, which was perceived to be somewhat indecisive, particularly at these opening stages of the pandemic. And while the public were seeking answers themselves online, governments were bringing in new rules and restrictions. In the UK, instead of using the existing Civil Contingencies Act, the government hastily brought in a new Coronavirus Act, but in practice it actually relied more on public health legislation from the 1980s, which was not what it was intended for. And this caused some concerns, 
as Professor Andrew Blick explains. There was a debate around about whether the right legislation was being used in the proper way for what it was intended for. Another issue was that a government, understandably in the context of the time, took on a lot of power for itself, a lot of discretionary power, which it was exercising without perhaps the normal level of parliamentary oversight. And again, this was an area of concern. There was also confusion about just what was being imposed. Was it a rule, a guideline or a new law? An important principle of the rule of law is clarity. We're supposed to be able to know what the law is and know whether or not you're breaking the law. And if you're in a situation where government is taking on lots of extra powers, doing it using legislation which maybe wasn't really designed for that purpose, and then in the process you're getting a lot of confusion around what is and isn't law and when you are and are not actually breaking the law, all of that is a concern from, from the perspective of the rule of law. The pandemic also raised practical challenges for key parts of the UK constitution, including the courts, the government, parliament and the Church of England. All of those things involve people being in the same room as each other, working, meeting, deliberating together. And obviously that was really, really, particularly in, in the earlier stages of the, of the pandemic, not possible or only possible to a very limited extent. And new ways had to be found of enabling these things to keep functioning. And that was really significant. Fortunately, we had that technology and that enabled these institutions to keep functioning, perhaps not functioning in an optimal way, but still operating. The global nature of the pandemic meant international leadership organisations had a key role to play. However, they too face significant challenges, as Professor Funmi Olonishakin explains. The idea that you have a United Nations or a global community that is impacted in the same way at the same time, which was actually the core message of the pandemic at the time, was very quickly dismantled because we quickly realised that there were power dynamics between states and within states that meant that, you know, some lives were almost worthless. Some lives were worth much more than the lives of others. The poor nations were differently impacted by COVID-19. The fact that wealthy nations could rally around it, and you can just say, you know, politically, the division between global north and global south became more apparent. The wealthy global north could, you know, come together quickly or in fact individually act and come up with uh, solutions to the problems. Many could follow and pay for it and meet the cost of it. Many could easily develop vaccines and immediately also produce them and ensure that the populations were vaccinated very quickly. The opposite was the case in the global south. Even when they wanted to lock down, they couldn't lock down successfully because people worked on the streets on a daily basis. Many had to uh, use force to restrict their populations to stay indoors. She says the pandemic exposed deep inequalities that already existed in our societies. Some people just did not have the means to respond or capacity to respond, and their states could not support them. Some people were structurally weakened already as a result of this insecurity in some communities, like the Black and minority ethnic communities in the UK, in the US, or poor people across the global South, for example, whether they were, you were talking about Africa or parts of Asia, the fact that you belonged to a lower socioeconomic class, 
meant that you struggled to really live well or even be in a place where you could feel remotely secure as a result of the pandemic. In some of these places, it was as bad as violence being inflicted on them because we were daring to show up for work on a daily basis. Another thing the pandemic exposed was the reality of devolution in the UK. Some matters, including health, now rest with the Scottish Parliament and Welsh Assembly rather than Westminster. So each was able to make their own decisions on how and when to try to stop the spread of the virus. The pandemic also came after the referendum on Scottish independence in 2014 and the Brexit vote in 2016, the terms of which were still being negotiated. The divisions caused by Brexit in particular were still being keenly felt, as Andrew explains. That creates an enormous period of turmoil, unusual turmoil in the sense that it cuts across the more usual political divisions, creates huge issues within the Conservative Party and to an extent within the Labour Party, also applies a lot of pressure to the territorial constitution of the UK, Scotland voting to remain, it revives the independence issue in Scotland, Northern Ireland, lots of complexities there. And these big regional differentiations in voting, for instance, London voting to remain while other parts of England vote vote more heavily to leave. So there's a lot of pressure there, a lot of political turmoil, and it actually brings to power in the end the Prime Minister, who is the Prime Minister during the pandemic, Boris Johnson. The turmoil of the times in which COVID-19 arose was also relevant for those on the far right, as Blythe outlines. The fact that kind of Trump was in office in the US coinciding with the COVID pandemic, coinciding with the reignition of the Black Lives Matter movement, coinciding to some extent with anti-LGBT sentiment. And there's a whole perfect storm of factors. So we saw lots of different narratives kind of being chucked out essentially and people would could kind of gravitate to whichever one they felt stuck with them the best. So we saw kind of narratives about COVID being a hoax um, and using it to kind of expose the government and um, further anti-government attitudes in the public. We saw it being sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories being really, really prevalent as well. There were, I think, particularly at the start of the pandemic, there was this idea that COVID could be essentially a bioweapon for the far right that they could use for their own purposes. So there were posters telling supporters to cough in their local drug dealer, which is a play on, you know, a very prominent far right slogan that's already quite, um, has a lot of salience within the far right already. Conversely to that, there was the idea that in some collectives that COVID was a weapon that was going to be attacking the far right and attacking white people to try and push down white birth rates. In terms of anti-Asian hate, there was very much a huge spike in that, again, over the whole pandemic and again, particularly at these opening stages. And I think that this really just shows how when there is this unrest and uncertainty, that's really where the far right and conspiracy theories are able to take hold. For some groups, the tactics seem to work. White Rose, which ran a stickering campaign on the London Underground, saw its number of followers on the Telegram platform rise to around 60,000. Another group that grew more prominent was QAnon, which started in 2017 but really exploded online in March 2020, particularly on Facebook, largely because of COVID. We saw these collectives um, on social media that had modest um, membership absolutely exploding in terms of membership and usership because of COVID conspiracy theories and particularly those which are gelling with existing sort of wellness collectives online and in parenting collectives. And although, you know, after a few months, the conspiracy theory was somewhat stemmed by Facebook, it really already taken hold. And yeah, essentially COVID just boosted QAnon like nothing we'd really seen before, comparable in scale. She also thinks it was one of the stresses for those who took part 
in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol in the US. Imagining that event happening without those conspiracies surrounding COVID is quite difficult. In the early stages of the pandemic, there were also huge concerns about what would happen as the virus spread around the world. Finmi recalls how many assumed that COVID-19 would follow the same pattern as Spanish flu, which had led to huge numbers of deaths in Africa after the First World War, as soldiers returned from the front to their homes. But she said that while there were many deaths, they were not on the scale many had predicted. And this is something that she thinks needs further investigation. The kinds of calamity that, you know, uh, everyone expected did not occur in Africa. And there's more research to be done in this area. The very obvious uh, response that we get is because Africa has a really a large youth population. Indeed, it's one of the factors, but it's not the only factor uh, of a population of 1.2 billion, more than 800, 900 million. Uh, roughly are under the age of 35. So it's significant. But the second thing is people across many, many African communities lived their lives as normal, believing that they had had everything from typhoid to malaria to Ebola and so on. And this pandemic was not the thing that would defeat them. And so they had really, they, they, they were determined to be resilient in the face of this and the, the millions of deaths that we expected did not occur in that way in Africa. There were other ways too in which the pandemic challenged preconceptions. What we thought was a settled idea that democratic states were more successful than autocratic states, that democracies would fend for themselves for each other and that the citizens would trust them more. Again, that idea was blown out of the window completely. Uh, we saw that we couldn't distinguish between democratic states and autocratic states in terms of the effectiveness of responding to, uh, especially in the initial times of responding to, to the pandemic. It's also questions of state capacity will be one thing, that the state has good capacity in terms of public health system, Having that capacity was one thing, but actually really having the trust of your people that governments were trusted to respond and respond effectively for the whole, that became a real challenge. And in fact, in many democracies, they ran into trouble because citizens didn't trust governments or, or indeed their fellow citizens, and they did not comply with shutdown orders or take the necessary protective measures. Yet, in some uh, so-called autocratic states, citizens trusted their governments and complied with lockdown. And I'm not talking about those parts of the developing world where they had to use violence against their citizens. In some places it was through violence, but the question of trust, as you would see in places like Vietnam, some point in time in China as well, China went through different phases of this. So, so the argument that, you know, you had those natural expectations of democracies was again completely out the window. This pandemic really showed us the flaws and the global uh, leadership in, uh, infrastructure is how global leadership institutions from the World Health Organization itself, uh, from the United Nations, really, especially the United Nations, was simply unable to respond. We saw that the United Nations just was completely powerless. The so-called big hitters, the owners of the United Nations as it were, who hold veto power, the permanent five members, were not at all on the same page. 
And in fact, the divisions between global north and south were seriously manifested within the UN itself. And this, this was a big, big uh, moment in the world in terms of seeing the ineffectiveness of our global leadership institutions. For her, a key learning that has already emerged from the pandemic is around leadership infrastructure, not just the hardware, which is the structures of governance in the state, but also the less well understood software. The big revelation is about the software of the leadership infrastructure. And as far as I can see in what I have, I had studied pre-COVID and post-COVID, the software element of the leadership infrastructure is everything. It's about the relationship between those who are guarding, if you like, the hardware, the managers of that hardware on behalf of people and the rest of society and the relationship amongst people in that society where you have trust because as a matter of fact, they feel that they've experienced together, communally they organize together. There's an entire trust between those leading and those who are being led. You saw more robust, better response. So just being a democracy was not sufficient. That trust was absent in the US. In the UK at some point, it was also absent. At some point, maybe more present. There was confidence when the vaccinations were going. But at the beginning, much as people wanted to really do the right thing, you could see fractures in that relationship in different ways. And it speaks volumes to the quality of individual leaders and their capacity to build a relationship of trust with society. Those things, they measured less in what you call, what we looked at in terms of advancement in, you know, in democracies, in governance before. Now we know that those relationships, the software element of the leadership, it is lifeblood, as it were. That lifeblood was absent at various moments in so-called wealthy democratic nations. And yet you saw examples being set in some democracies. You saw examples being set by New Zealand and the prime minister. You saw examples being set in Germany by Angela Merkel, for example. And that trust spread in that society. They also ran into some difficulty later. But, you know, the crisis doesn't run away from you uh, when those relationships are strong. You saw strength in that relationship at, you know, many moments in China. You saw trust in South Korea. Uh, you saw that trust in Vietnam. You saw that trust in Taiwan. And people would say women leaders were more successful than men leaders. There's something to be said about that. And we've had different analysis of that. It's uh, not just those gender dynamics, but it is the overall relationship in society. I think a big lesson for me from the pandemic has been to understand that the software of the leadership infrastructure at any given moment trumps the hardware. We've seen how in authoritarian countries in Africa, they did not necessarily have long-term success compared to those where relationships were built genuinely, not out of violent you know, or, or, co or coercive power. In the UK, issues around trust between leaders and their people have continued to dominate politics. As Andrew explains, the Prime Minister during the pandemic, Boris Johnson, ended up being forced out of office in part because of the revelations about the behaviour of himself, his ministers and officials in 10 Downing Street during the lockdowns. The biggest scandal in the Johnson Premiership that really does so much to undermine him is these breaches of lockdown rules that take place when parties or gatherings or whatever you want to call them are going on on government premises, including in number 10, the Prime Minister's official residence 
well, actually lives in the flat above number 11, but it's the official residence of the Prime Minister and obviously the place where the Prime Minister also works. There were gatherings going on in there, lots of fines issued to lots of staff members and also a fine issued to Johnson himself and other senior people. And that really contributes to the downfall of Johnson. And, and as is often the case with these kind of scandals, is not necessarily just the thing itself, but it's the cover-up or you know what some would call the cover-up, the way in which the information gets out, the way in which Johnson is judged by many not to be wholly cooperative with these inquiries. And I, I say this, there's a uh, committee of privileges in Parliament has been set up specifically to look into this issue as to whether or not Johnson deliberately misled Parliament over this. So this hasn't been settled yet, but certainly there's been a lot of accusations that Johnson wasn't as uh, clear with Parliament and open with Parliament as he might have been about this issue. So that helps to bring down Johnson the issue. And it's in a sense, it's a pandemic related story because it's about the breaking of those laws that the government passed. And even with Boris Johnson having gone and been replaced by Liz Truss as Prime Minister, many of the issues she's dealing with can be traced back to the pandemic. The pandemic comes along, is layered on top of a lot of turmoil, and then contributes to the political scenario we find ourselves in now, and also is a factor in the fault lines we can see in the Conservative Party and arguments about things like, should we be cutting taxes immediately? Taxes are partly are where they are because of paying for the pandemic. You know, and this sense that the government was straying from the free market agenda, which many in the Conservatives would like it to follow. And one of the reasons, probably the main reason it's doing that was the pandemic response. So it's clear that the pandemic is having an impact still on the main political parties in the UK. But what about those on the far right? Has their apparent surge in popularity lasted as public interest in COVID has waned? Here's Blythe. There was a time that really this was kind of the main thing that the far right were coalescing around to recruit new people and to mainstream their message. Rather than that, we're sort of seeing it developing into more of a background hum. So we'll generally see kind of this idea that, you know, COVID may or may not have been a hoax, but at least, you know, it's definitely not as severe as people made out to be, or kind of anti-vaxxers will still be very resolute in the fact that, yeah, they were correct not to get vaccinated and, you know, feeling still very good um, about that position and still kind of talking about how strongly they relate to kind of the anti-vax position. But I think we do still see kind of reactions among the far right to breaking stories about COVID, particularly about kind of young people now being vaccinated. But they aren't, they don't have the same online traction as they did in sort of early 2020. And I think when we're looking at whether or not people have been able to step away from the movement, a lot does to some extent depend on how far into the movement they were and how easy it is for them to step away. So there are some people at this outer ring who will be a little bit interested in conspiracy theories, but, you know, they maybe won't spend, you know, all day on Telegram browsing um, misinformation channels. Um, and then you see one step further into this, this tighter, smaller ring of people who are you know, spending all day on these channels and really chatting to other conspiracy theorists. One step further in, they might be more likely to attend an anti-lockdown protest or translate into real world action. And I think that the stoppers, and that goes all the way into the centre of the circle to people who might be sort of willing to carry out an offline attack potentially, or to really take action on behalf of these causes. I asked her if there are lessons from the pandemic that could help us understand better the rise of extremism and what we should do now, based on the learnings from the past two years. I think when we're looking at the far right's response to coronavirus, 
something that is really important for us to take away from it is how um, useful for the far right this societal disruption and this level of mainstream political unrest is for the far right. We really saw moral panic being able to take hold at a time of widespread confusion. And so I think that the fact that we saw kind of distrust of the government being quite an important factor as to whether or not people were willing to engage with conspiracy theories shows that, you know, we need a coherent response if we're dealing with issues like this in the future. And that is really quite important for kind of all aspects of the far right, particularly when we're moving into this era of, to some extent, ideological incoherence and extremism that isn't so structured by strict ideology. Remembering how important this um, level of disruption is, is really important when we're considering that. A number of these far right groups have, to some extent, moved slightly away from the importance of coronavirus and are now kind of capitalising on what they view as this new hot button issue, which is trans rights. And so I think in an ideal world, we would look at our kind of response to the COVID pandemic and would think, we don't want that to happen again. I asked Blythe for her thoughts on the future, about the rise of the far right and other extremist groups, including how powerful or not they might become. Do I think that Britain First is going to be kind of winning the general election? No, I absolutely don't. But do I think that kind of the far right is getting more ambitious in its will to kind of shift the Overton window and shift mainstream discussion? Yeah, potentially I do. And I think that that is a worrying dynamic. Dynamics of transnationalization are still being very worrying. We've seen this with accelerationist violence, where we've seen attacks in New Zealand influencing attacks in the US, in Germany and in Norway, and this continues to be a real worry. The far right, essentially, we've seen it move away so much from being a movement structured by very clear groups and very strictly defined groups, kind of defined by membership and very strict ideology. And we're now seeing it move into the space of loosely defined brands, essentially, um, that are structured more through aesthetics rather than kind of strict ideology. I think getting to grips with this is going to be quite important as we kind of look to the future of the movement. So there is still, you know, racism, anti-Semitism, kind of anti-gender political motivations are still very important, but less so specific group affiliation. So you could be influenced by several many groups or brands at the same time um, without having formal membership to any one of them, which is very different, you know, from what we saw with, you know, the KKK, for example. If we're looking at, you know, the Christchurch attacker, he wasn't a formal member of any group um, and he was very much just inspired by movements he found online, his travels and was what we would call a lone actor, even though he was very much part of a number of online spaces. And that is a trend that has been for some time essentially the dominant model of action on the far right. For Andrew, it's important that we learn from the pandemic so we are ready for future challenges. There have been lots of questions raised about aspects of the way in which the UK government responded. Did they respond quickly enough? Did they listen to their advisors? Did they listen to the right advisors? All those things are going on. An inquiry has been set up that's not yet gone into full evidence taking mode, but will be looking into many different aspects of, of the pandemic, from which hopefully we can get some lessons about things like how do we make sure we're ready for different eventualities how do we make sure that expert advice is used in the right way and responded to properly by decision makers? How do those decision makers balance the expert advice against other political considerations, which they have to take into account? 
and also how do we for instance communicate with the public how do we make sure that the, the public are kept informed and and uh, help to respond in the right way to these problems all those issues are going to be looked at and obviously you get into more controversial things as well like have uh, has there been malpractice in government have contracts been given to people in the wrong way on the wrong terms for the wrong reasons all of those issues are coming up already so hopefully we are going to learn things he says that while there will be a lot of focus on the former prime minister boris johnson that does not mean the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, can entirely shift blame onto him and his administration. We have a Prime Minister who was a participant in the Johnson governments during the pandemic. And therefore, even if they perhaps weren't as directly involved in some of the decisions that Johnson was involved in, it's harder for them to entirely excuse themselves from any uh, faults that may be identified. and. Obviously, the agenda of the new prime minister is very much shaped by responding to the pandemic, dealing with the issues around, for instance, taxation, the divisions within their party that played a part in getting them into the office of prime minister. So a bit like Brexit, the pandemic is not really done with and it will be very much an item on the agenda of the new prime minister. They have some historic association with what went on and they'll also have to deal with, with the consequences of it going forward. For Funmi, there are important lessons to be learned around leadership. There's a lot we should now know and research about why leadership is more important in, in the kind of crisis we've had in the last couple of years than individual political systems or the wealth of a country. The single most important lesson is about how we treat each other how leaders respond to their people's needs without being too dogmatic or retreating to supporting only one part of society. We now know that how leaders lead is far more important than the fact that systems are there. Systems can last only to a point, but without the people, without the software, the lifeblood of the entire uh, system, without that software element of the leadership infrastructure, we should not expect to have long-lasting success and more research has to be done about this aspect of governance. There have been some positive developments from the pandemic for international leadership organizations, especially to demonstrate that global cooperation or international safeguards are, are vital. And I have to say that those positive developments are limited to the recognition and to persistent statements, uh, which we saw uh, the World Health Organization has done its own bit in that regard. It's not just WHO, we've seen how the United Nations has tried in that regard. But I have to say to you, though, that the opposite is what has been happening by and large. We have seen big nations retreat within their own national boundaries, and that's actually the dynamic that seems to have dominated the space. And so, so that what I would call that more negative development has unfortunately been the order of the day. When you've talked about global cooperation or international safeguards, the practice has been that when it comes to vaccinations, as an example, when it comes to the release of funding, as an example, wealthier nations have taken care of themselves more and even though all those statements have been made, which you, we will say as a positive, uh, in practice, they have considered the situations of the less advanced countries, of the poorer parts of the world, less than, you know, there's much less that has happened in that area than the promise. This itself and the retreat of countries within their borders 
it's been a major, major issue. Where we have seen real success is how researchers, how academic institutions and scientists have behaved whilst they have collaborated across borders to produce vaccination. Countries have retreated politically to take care of themselves and their own people. This disparity, it's something that we need to look at very seriously because I don't think it's a basis upon which we can found a new future, a new global future and a new global uh, leadership infrastructure. I mean, by that, I'm suggesting that we need a new global leadership infrastructure in order for there to be the kinds of cooperation between states amongst peoples of the world. We see that kind of cooperation happen transnationally amongst individual groups, uh, small groups, communities of people and researchers in particular. We haven't seen that at the level of states or groups of states. If there's anything, we're seeing retrogression in that area. Looking to the future, Finmi wants to see a new way of thinking when it comes to global leadership and international organisations. I do not think that we have the right organisations, the organisations that we need for this moment in history. We have been using organisations that uh, were created in the last century to respond to the challenges of the last century. And I'm not saying that we need to dismantle them. Uh, with the World Health Organization, or WHO, which, which still has at its foundation the collaboration between experts in the world, I think it's not going to be difficult to fix it. But there are some governance processes that should be able to determine, help it determine its effectiveness such that more powerful states will not bully it at will, as we've seen of both China and the United States. There are real difficulties for institutions like this when those that are the most powerful in its membership decide to go rogue of the United Nations. I think its structures, especially the political structures, simply cannot work because they're based on old ideas, old kinds of power dynamics. And therefore, if we do not rethink that particular part of the global leadership infrastructure uh, sooner, than later would see a far more inefficient global order than we've had. And I'm not saying that we should throw all of this away, but it needs some fundamental rethinking in its governance architecture in order for it to be effective. But I actually am optimistic that a group of states, and if a group of states will come together to really mediate this space, interestingly, it will be those that we didn't think could do it before. And we need a new leadership conversation in the world and within our different states as well. We have many middle powers in the world that are not necessarily organizing on the basis of East or West. At this stage, I'm thinking of what, you know, the calamity we're seeing in Ukraine and, and Russia, for example, which has further broken that system because it means that all of the rules, all of the values uh, around which the United Nations was built uh, all of those values are just being dismantled. The idea that a war of aggression was something that would never happen again, uh, which was the big principle in 1945, or that crimes against humanity would not be committed. All of those things, all of those rules have been broken. And yet, in order to come together to think about what this means in a new world for international leadership organizations, it cannot be that we are divided completely that we're polarized completely on the side of whether this is on the size of the side of this kind of democracy or this kind of world order. We need a, a good conversation that allows us to talk to each other, 
about what works going forward. So while many people are wanting to move on from COVID and put the past two years behind us, it seems the consequences of the pandemic are far from over, as Andrew explains. The pandemic had a huge effect on global politics, on global society, on global economy, and had a huge effect specifically on the UK. In many ways, had an economic effect, had an effect on the way in which we go about our daily lives, and also uh, obviously had an effect on the way in which politicians operate. So we can expect this kind of global shock to have an impact, and that impact will carry on in ways we can't necessarily predict. Any major event like this means that we have to respond quickly, improvise, make things up as we go along, get some things right, get some things wrong. And then hopefully, you know, a good aspect of, of public policy would be that we would learn from, from that experience and use that experience to respond better to the next challenge. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.